about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. It's great to meet a few new people here tonight. A special welcome to you. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are journeying through this series on the life of King David. And perhaps you are wondering what I'm going to do with this passage. It is a confronting passage, is it not? Um, So many responses going on inside the passage. Fear, anger, love, joy, resentment, humility... And then our responses that we bring to this passage as we're confronted with what happens in it, what God does in it. Now, having wrestled with this passage for the last few weeks, I'm convinced that this is one of the more profound passages of the Old Testament that reveal to us the character of God. We've got to do some work to kind of just really feed on what we're hearing tonight, but also that it it points so clearly to the gospel. So just kind of bear with me as we kind of wrestle with some of the harder parts that we might come out the other side and see God's goodness. And to do that, we're going to do um, just, we're going to focus on God's presence, but I want to look at sort of four aspects, sort of four chapter headings as we we work through this passage. Firstly, God's presence in the world. Uh, Secondly, how we're confronted with the problem of God's presence and how David is then humbled by God's presence which leads to the gospel of God's presence. All right, let's begin. Now, we've skipped over a whole bunch from 1 Samuel 19, heading into now 2 Samuel 6. Uh, There's one kind of narrative theme that we've skipped over really entirely as we've been looking through 1 Samuel, and that's kind of, that's the narrative of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I'm not sure what you think of when you hear Ark of the Covenant. You might go to Indiana Jones. Um, anyone go there? Yeah, you know you want to. Great movie. Uh, we'll come back to that, actually. Uh, but it, it's this kind of this ancient uh, box that contained uh, the, the two tablets of the commandments and a bunch of other holy items, and it was a very holy and special item in the life of Israel. Uh, particularly, when we read, kind of say in verse 2, It says this, read it with me, the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. That is kind of on top of this golden box, there were kind of two angels, and between that we're told uh, God dwells. And, And that is really unique, that this God who made all things would actually dwell among His people, dwell in His creation. Now, given this is such a special thing for Israel, such a special blessing that God would dwell among them and kind of give them this Ark of the Covenant as a symbol of of His presence, it seems quite strange that it's been sitting in some kind of random hill town in Israel for the last 20 years. It's just kind of been put in the cupboard, as it were. And what's going on there, if I can just give you a bit of backstory, Israel tried to weaponize the ark, just like in Indiana Jones. Uh, and so they, they took kind of the ark into battle, assuming that the power of God, the presence of God would just kind of just wreak havoc and that they would be victorious. God said, I'll have none of that. I'm not your toy. 
I'm not a weapon. And so the Israelites lost in battle. The Philistines who they were battling took the Ark of the Covenant, which is super hectic. That the sort of this Ark where, where God's presence is meant to sort of dwell over was actually taken into enemy hands. And what happens is they kind of put it in their kind of like, you know, temple place. They find their idols, their gods, are falling over during the night around the Ark of the Covenant. And they're sort of freaking out about what's happening. Kind of the idol heads snap off. People start getting really sick. And so the Philistines are just like, we don't know what to make of this power. It's kind of out of control. It's beyond us. Send it back to Israel. And so they send it back to Israel. And people are like, woohoo, God's presence is back. Uh, they get a bit too excited, open the covenant, which they're told not to do, and 70 people are wiped out in that instance. And that leaves them saying, who can stand in the presence of God? That's what sort of theme we're going to see unpack. Who can stand in the presence of God? And their answer is to stash it in the hills of Israel. And I guess that symbolizes Saul's uninterestedness in God, his ambivalence towards God. We'll just stash it in the cupboard. <laughs> Well, after Saul's death, David becomes king. And as a man of God, one of his first acts is to really, um, well, he just conquered Jerusalem. He wants to bring the ark back to Jerusalem or into Jerusalem. That, that the presence of God would be at the center of the Israelites' life and worship. And that, that's kind of a noble thing, right? That's a, it's a beautiful thing that he wants. He hasn't been asked to do it, but I think it's symbolic of his desire to see God at the center of Israel. And so he gathers 30,000 military men, not for war, but for this procession. And these huge crowds gather around and, and they're singing and there's dancing because they're bringing this, the presence of God into Jerusalem, this new city, this new center point of Israel. And there's much excitement. But... It doesn't quite go to plan. It brings us straight into the problem of God's presence. Now, some of us might have anticipated things going a little sideways, or when David puts the ark on a cart, a pretty minor detail, uh, but you might be aware, or maybe not, that's okay, in the book of Numbers, God's really specific. Given the ark is so special, he's very specific about how it should be handled, and there's kind of these, these rings on the side of the, of the Ark of the Covenant. And, and they're supposed to put these poles through those rings. And a special tribe, a special clan in the tribe of the Levites, one of the tribes of Israel, were meant to carry that, They're, them alone. And no one's allowed to touch the Ark because it's, it's holy. It's set apart just like God is holy. But David overlooks that, whacks it on the cart, sends it towards Jerusalem, and the fanfare unfolds, you know, around the cart, um, you know, it's being pulled by this ox. You don't ride an ox. You kind of walk alongside it, in front of it, behind it. Uh, one of those guys walking alongside the ox is Uzar, who's the son of the man who'd been entrusted to look after the ark in the hill country for the last 20 years. And there it is, verse 5. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with cassinets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, whatever a sistrum is, and cymbals. We get the fanfare. But then Uzar, alongside the ark, notices that the ox stumbles. And for what we can presume, steadies the ark unless it falls. And then we read, The Lord's anger burned against Uzar because of his 
a reverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Kind of hard to swallow, isn't it? Especially since he seems to be doing something noble with good intention. I mean, couldn't God perhaps relax a little? You know, for crying out loud, he kind of stopped the ark from falling on the ground, so it seems. This is a long way, perhaps, from what we imagine human flourishing looking like. It looks like religion at its worst. Dawkins and others describe, you know, use passages like this to describe the God of the Old Testament as arguably the most unpleasant character in all of history. He says fiction, petty, unjust, vindictive, capricious, malevolent. I feel that. I was at the physio this week getting my neck looked at. I'm getting old and you've got some creaks going on. And uh, as, as we've, I've been to her a couple of times now, so she knows what I do for a day job. And she says, oh, what are you, what are you doing today? This is Thursday. I said, I'm preparing a sermon for Sunday. She's like, what's it on? <laughs> how do I kind of, how do I answer that question with this passage? I said, oh, God gets really angry with the person. And she's like, oh, <laughs> as in like just fulfilled all her kind of worst stereotypes of religion. <clears throat> she says, how's that work out? <laughs> I said, well, it's held in tension with his love. But I couldn't say much more, she was digging into my neck. <clears throat> but I feel like this question, particularly of the capriciousness of God, just I want to dig into it a little bit further. Uh, because, I mean, I guess God is God, so he can be whoever he wants to be. If he wants to be a dictator, that he's God. Okay, who are we to say you can't be a dictator? But is God capricious? And, and it's not a word I use often, but I feel like it describes what, how people might be seeing this passage and kind of how he flies, look, looks like he's flying off the handle. The capricious meaning kind of that violent change in behavior, very angsty, moody. You know, and if God is that, as I said, so be it if that's what he is, but it will make it hard for us to trust him if he's volatile. And any sense of personal relationship would be diminished by just this sense of fear and servitude under such a God. And so I think it's really worth asking the question from this passage, is God capricious? And we're uncomfortable with the idea of judgment on any given day, but this sudden act, the way this kind of rolls out, it kind of really pricks our sense of injustice. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time on that. Firstly, I want to kind of affirm some of the scarier parts that it really is a fearful thing to come into the presence of God. Uh, that's written about in the Old and the New Testament. Uzzah made the assumption that, that he was worthy to do that. Uh, the, kind of, the scriptures will paint a picture of humanity as falling short of the glory of God, that we are sinful, that we are unholy. And, and it's, like, it's like a volatile mix of uh, oil and water, maybe water and potassium if you're into chemistry. Uh, they don't mix. We can't, as unholy people, just walk into the presence of God and assume it will be okay. Even God's holy prophets who are sanctioned to walk into uh, or allowed to walk into his presence tremble with fear. I'm thinking of Isaiah in his commissioning in Isaiah chapter 6, if you know that passage. It is a fearful thing to come into the presence of God. And, and Uzzah, despite his good intentions, assumed he was worthy to do that. 
Now, if that is the case and humans are unholy, maybe it would have been better. This sounds a bit crazy, but maybe it would have been better to let the ark fall to the ground. The ground is morally neutral. It's not offensive to God in the way that we are offensive to him. That's a challenging statement, I know. But we have to take into account the fact that we have personally offended God in the way that we think, speak, and act. And God takes that really seriously. Secondly, God is not like us. I think we make the assumption that you know, if we just had a beer with God, we could work stuff out. Like if Azar and kind of God just sat in a pub and just kind of had a sesh to kind of talk it through. There's a misunderstanding. You know, maybe they'll kind of just work it out together. That's, God's not like that. Not, uh, particularly, I'm thinking, the way God sees the heart. It's not like God just sees the externalities like we read in the passage. And we just think, oh, well, Uzar was just a really great guy and just doing a good thing there. God is able to cut through all of that and see exactly what is going on inside the heart of Uzar. He sees into our heart, if that's not a scary prospect. And so we, we, don't, we don't know for sure, but I, I want to put out there that it's, that it's possible that Uzar's heart was not in the right place, that his heart was not for God. We read in kind of Ezekiel and in 1, 1 Timothy, both the Old and the New Testament, that God does not delight in the death of a sinner. He is not just angry looking for a reason to kind of wipe us out. He does not delight in the death of a sinner. And so we've got to take into consideration that God has not done this lightly, even though it seems to happen in an instant. So we don't know the heart of Uzzah, but we do know the character of God as we read through scriptures, and maybe there's more to this than we can see. I'm just putting that out there as a possibility. So I try and merge the character of God into what's happening here. But, but thirdly, God is a God of relationship. And in that kind of, in that personalness of God, in the personal offense he has towards our unholiness, but as he relates to us, there is a certain flexibility in that. And what I'm thinking is, if, if God was kind of going to exercise strict justice, it, he would have been, the smiting would have begun when they chucked the ark on the cart. But instead he overlooked in fact, he overlooks a whole bunch of stuff. If you read through 1 Samuel, and I'm reading through Judges in my quiet time, and it's a, it's a real messed up story, God overlooks a whole bunch of horrendous stuff because he is flexible, he's merciful as he seeks to pursue an unholy people in love. But what's happening at this point is it seems that God is choosing this moment to clearly communicate that even the best of us with our best intentions, cannot approach God on our own terms. Let me say that again. That even the best of us, with our best intentions, cannot approach God on our terms. That is a frightening prospect. David is just overwhelmed. Could you imagine that in the middle of all of that fanfare and the joy and there is David kind of leading the procession into Jerusalem. Then this happens in the middle of that as all people look in. And there is just deathly silence, I can imagine. And the people awkwardly trickle back to their homes and wondered, what the heck was that about? David would have been left all alone to ponder what he instigated and what unfolded. David is humbled if not 
humiliated by what just unfolded. But the text zooms particularly into David's heart in two ways. You see at verse 8, he's, he's angry. He's angry that the, that the Lord's anger kind of burst out against Uzzah. And as I kind of first read this passage, I'm like, he's angry at God, of course, right? Like, I'd be angry at God. I'm like, what, what was that about? Why did you do that for? Just to kind of as an immediate response. But the passage doesn't say he was angry at God. It just says he was angry. Angry at kind of just what's just happened. But maybe, as some commentators suggest, even angry at himself. Angry that he was casual in his approach to God. Just kind of it's the next thing to do. Angry that, that what he instigated put Uzzah into a position he should never have been in. And as a result has died under the judgment of God. But anger is not a primary emotion, we know that. Maybe verse 9 gets a bit deeper into David's heart. He was afraid of the Lord. How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? That's King David saying that. He's kind of like the godly leader, the best of the best. And he's saying, how can the ark ever come to me with what's just happened? Or as we read in kind of Psalm 24, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who is worthy of the Lord? It's such a key question. I remember chatting to my neighbor a few suburbs back in the western suburbs of Sydney and we're just chatting shop talking life and I was preaching that afternoon on a sunny Sunday afternoon and I said oh, why don't you come along to church and kind of just hear kind of what goes on in church you can critique me you can bash me whatever he said I would never step inside a church I said why is that because I have done too many bad things he sort of joked about being smited but he really felt a sense of kind of who am I to come before God it was sad that he kept himself at a distance because of that. That's how he felt. Even he understood, at one level, the grandeur of God, the holiness of God, his unworthiness before God. For those that step inside church, we feel varying degrees of unworthiness as we compare ourselves to other Christians. Perhaps I was talking to a person just this week who, who looks at kind of the messiness of their life and looks at kind of the lives of those people that come to church and seem to have it all sorted and they think, I'm not worthy to even be among God's people, let alone to be before God. Even at the church planning conference I was at recently in Taipei, many of the pastors felt like hypocrites, like they were even a disappointment to God. That's a heavy thing to carry. I could never be in God's holy presence, some might say. And when you say it, I think you get it. I think you get God's bigness, His holiness, your unholiness. But the thing is, it's just not true. You can't stay there. Because God's presence is good news. There is a gospel, a good news story to God's presence among us. And it's not until David distances himself from the ark, creates some time out from the disaster, that he sees God's provision. Read with you in verse 10. He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. As we keep reading, and the Lord blessed him 
and his entire household. And when David hears this, as the news kind of comes to him that God has blessed those around the ark, it totally flips the story. It flips his heart. It takes him out of solitude and disappointment and anger and fear. And it begins to restart the project of bringing the ark back into Jerusalem. Why is that? It's because David realizes that that God, his presence is not a problem as much as it is a blessing. God's presence is, is, is kind of God's desire to have fellowship with us. That he is for us to bless us. This whole episode was to ensure that Israel sought God on his terms and find his blessing. He is not an object to be paraded around, not a trinket, not an object of some religious cult where you might find self-righteousness. He is the living and active God and we must approach him for who he is. This time, the ark is carried by people, not a cart. No doubt the Levites carrying it on those poles as God commanded. David made several sacrifices in this procession, including the particular sacrifice of atonement, the burnt offering, read about in verse 17. That particular sacrifice was what God was pleased to accept, to join that which was holy himself with that which was unholy, atonement, to bring at one. And in that, in that one-ment, there is rejoicing and blessing and, and worship and dancing and eating and all without fear. Within three months, God had turned it around that they might approach him for who he is in his holiness and find blessing. See, David was being molded through God's deliberate intervention to be the kind of king God wanted him to be. Now, if I was David, and I'm deliberately importing myself into the story here, I would have felt like an imposter. I would have felt absolutely exposed in that moment where you're kind of charging for God, and it all falls apart, and you're the one left standing, and it's your fault. You know, he's slain the the giant, he'd risen as king, led the people in victory around Jerusalem, and now leading people into godliness with the ark as a centerpiece, only to provoke God's judgment, and all the people disappear, I would have felt like a complete failure, an utter disappointment. I would have felt that particularly because I'm performance-driven. See, I focus on results and improvement, and when you're like that, you live in fear of, of judgment and failure. You know, I'm deliberately putting myself into David's shoes here. I don't know if David felt that particularly, but I know I'm not alone in what I feel. And in my fear of failure and in disappointment, my temptation, particularly when it comes to my sinfulness, is to religionize my sin. That is to kind of wheel out the 30,000 men and impress God and say, look, I've done some bad stuff, but I've also done some really good stuff and look at my strength, you know, look at my kind of resume, look that I go to church regularly, I'm a good Christian, <laughs> whatever that means. Or I minimize my sin. As if I could just have a beer with God and work it out. But then I'm confronted with God's response to Uzzah. I cannot minimize my sin. And God's not interested in my religiosity. Instead, I ought to relationalize my sin. That is to recognize that my sin has personally offended the holy God. 
And God takes that really seriously. In fact, it's a barrier to being in the presence of God. It breaks down community and it breaks myself. And it's just when I appreciate how damaging and offensive my sin is in my relationship with God that I see the gospel, not just in the blessing of Obed-Edom over there, but in Jesus Christ, who shows us the extent of God's holy judgment and the extent of his blessing and his love for me. Because Jesus is not just like an Uzzah who suffers under God's judgment, but he is a righteous person a righteous God-man who died for me as a willing sacrifice so that I might live and so that I might come into the presence of God. So while I'm still confronted by this God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, I read in Hebrews 4, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, not with fear, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So in my seasons of feeling like a failure, a disappointment, God doesn't want me to distance myself from Him as though I had to take some time out from His holiness, but approach Him and find even more grace. This approach isn't cheap, for I have been bought with the blood of Christ. This approach isn't easy in the sense that God exposes me and brings my sin out into the fore. And this approach is not casual in the sense that He is the living God. But when you see it like this, it's the easiest and most natural thing to do in the world. Because as we're told in the Scriptures, He is our Heavenly Father and we are His children. And when we run to him and find his embrace, we find intimacy and restoration to replace disappointment, failure, sin. And so for any sense of imposter within me, I want God to call out that imposter and love it, love him, love me. I've come to realize over the last few weeks that the seasons in my life where I have felt a lacking of God's presence in my life. It's often because I've, I've shortcut forgiveness. I've shortcut what it means to do relationship with God, do business with Him. I've taken for granted the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And I haven't, I haven't come to Him particularly to kind of bring the anger on my heart. I haven't come to Him with the particularities of my sin and my humiliation. As so just a general blanket kind of, you know, sorry for all that stuff would be good enough. Instead, like David prays in Psalm 139, as Tim led us in prayer before. He says, search me and know my heart. Every aspect of my life. I want to bring it all out before you, O great holy God. For you see it all. And I want us to do business. I want you to forgive me. And I want you to bring the power of your transforming grace to every part of my life. Only when we've gone through the journey of being humbled, recognizing who God is and who we are, and approach Him on His terms, do we find an embrace that brings joy and peace to the depths of our soul. And only in the safety of the gospel would we dare come before the Holy God and show Him our sin, knowing that He forgives us and brings transforming power.
And so the passage finishes with worship, with joy, because sin has been replaced with forgiveness. Fear has been replaced with love. Any feeling of disappointment has been replaced with being brought into the presence of God as a chosen one, as a loved one. And any smallness is brought into the context of the bigness of God who would care for us, personally. And so there, the kind of, the the narrative does full circle. There is singing and dancing and worship and joy and there is no fear. (laughs) Just beautiful adoration of this holy God in whom we found mercy. And so I want to finish with with David's kind of last words. We really haven't had time to dig into Michal and kind of her scornful words to David. But I want to finish by rewording David's response, kind of out of the storehouse of his heart, of what God has done in his heart, comes these words that I want to be our words. He says, I say, I've been chosen. I've been accepted in the love of Christ, and I will celebrate. I care not for being considered undignified by others, nor do I listen to the humiliation of my own judgments. But in my humility before God, I will be honored among the lonely, for I have found mercy within the holiness of God. If David had reason for worship, how much more so us who have been given new life in Christ. Let me pray. Father, you know, you know each and every one of us. You know our hearts. You know the stuff we're burying uh, from ourselves, hiding from ourselves and hiding from you. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to bring out every part of our life before you, O holy God so that you might bring transforming grace to every part of our lives, that we might live for you and find your blessing, and that we might be filled with the power of your presence within us. This we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.